Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Gavin. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Hey, Jordan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So there's going to be some people here that uh, don't know who you are. Could you give the guests a little bit of an introduction? Sure. So what I'm doing now, so I'm a contributor to Obscuro. In fact, I'm one of the co-founders for Obscuro Project. And that's keeping me pretty busy trying to keep that startup moving in the right direction so that we can get a mainnet live this year. Wicked. So this is where you are right now with Obscuro doing amazing but i really want to get to know who who gavin is let's uh let's run it back to your earliest memory take me back to your childhood what was life like for you growing up so i was very lucky growing up and uh, i know jordan this might sound familiar to you but i grew up in a place called braintree which is not too far from where we both live and i grew up in a very green very chilled out very relaxed kind of environment you know i was playing with cows I was playing in the stream with the mates. So yeah, I had a really, a really countryfied kind of upbringing. Yeah, really enjoyed it. It was looking back, I think that's the kind of, it's the kind of lifestyle I tried to bring to my kids as well. Kind of remind them that there is an outside world there. You know, if you can, if you can get away from your screens, you can actually have a good time out in the fields and with the cows and the streams. Why is that important to you? I guess it's reflective of how much I enjoyed it and that freedom, I guess. Having the freedom to be able to roam around and kind of play almost a fantasy game. You know, you can really let yourself, let your mind wander as a child, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, being able to just have those fantasy stories with your mates and, you know, getting dirty in the mud. I think uh, I think that's a pretty healthy way to, to grow up. I totally agree. What kind of influence did your parents have on you as i look back you know we all go through this transition i think as you as you move through to adulthood yourself and you realize well you see your parents through a different lens but my dad was always into computers i remember him bringing home a bbc micro b many many years ago i think there's a lot of people in technology that can reflect back to their first introduction to pcs and i was quite lucky that my dad was able to to bring bbc's home he brought pcs home and uh yeah that definitely piqued my interest and from a mum's side uh, so she was a teacher so I think having a degree of discipline I guess in the house was useful to make sure that I worked hard and, and got the results that I needed to be successful in where I am now. Yeah I, that's a nice little combination to be fair. <laughs> okay so how would you have described yourself as a child? As a child? Gosh these are really tough questions Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> let me think how did I describe myself as a child so I reckon I was pretty adventurous I kind of stuck to the rules a lot I wasn't the rebel you know in the classroom I was I kind of did what I was told cracked on knuckled down yeah I was kind of an average kid I know it sounds awful but I think looking back I was just an average kid and it took me a long time to realize that actually life is what you make it and I think when I was probably in my teens coming out of university, I kind of realised that 
you can't let life happen to you. You have to actually make life what you want and you have complete freedom and complete capability to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that 100%. Can you think, I mean, you talk about your upbringing there and you know now when you look at the path you're on right now, can you think of a pivotal moment in your life that has made you the person you are today? Is there one pivotal moment? I suspect there's probably not one. I imagine there's kind of layers of moments that you look back on. And then in the point in time, you may not actually realise what's happening. And then you reflect and you realise, actually, my life took a fairly different course. So I think pivotal moments, or, you know, the, the significant moments, I guess I would call them. Meeting my wife, Helen, she filled me with so much confidence to be able to pursue more challenging directions. And although it wasn't necessarily very overt encouragement, I think just being in in a very stable, loving relationship kind of gives you more self-confidence to be able to to push beyond your your boundaries and, and to try and achieve a little bit more. So that definitely helped shape me as a person. And obviously having kids, you know, that really that completely shifts your foundations beneath your feet, both positive and negative, I think. Obviously, kids are amazing. I love my kids to bits. But you do have to realise that my life changed significantly. Probably sounds naive to anybody who, who has got a family, but when you move away from just being you and you and your girlfriend or you and your fiancé or you and your wife, and then you suddenly have this extra person to look after, it really does shift the emphasis of what's important to you. And then things like, you know, sustaining that family and and being in a stable environment, being financially stable, all those things suddenly become quite, quite important. And perhaps you had a lot more flexibility before the kids turned up. So yeah, my wife, my kids definitely had a massive impact on my life. And if I think about my career in particular, I'm moving. So I used to work initially for a telecoms company, and then I moved into the financial industry. And one of the biggest shifts for me was, was joining an interdealer broker. And it gave me such a deeper understanding of how the financial industry works, the very complex and intertwined web that is traditional finance. And it, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. You know, there are so many threads and so many components to finance that are all reliant on each other. And an interdealer broker is, is a middleman between so many different counterparties that you kind of get a hint that if one thing in that chain breaks or becomes unstable, the ramifications, the ripple effect is is significant. So that was a real wake up call for me. What was your first job? First ever job was a chef. I would strongly encourage anybody to be a chef. There's a very popular show on, on a streaming platform at the moment, and it is about being a chef. And you definitely learn your limits at being a chef. You know, the one enduring memory I have is the printer, this little printer that used to sit in the corner and the waiters and waitresses would take the orders in the front of house and the orders would come through to this printer and this printer would just print out all day and you couldn't shout at it, you couldn't tell it to slow down, you couldn't tell it to stop, even though you are absolutely right off your feet, it just kept on printing. And uh, I think I had some PTSD after that, actually. But um, it was definitely, I definitely learned a lot about my own personal limits in that job. Yeah, I've actually talked about the job as a chef uh, amongst my friends before. Because when you, you know, I'd never been a chef, but you only got to watch uh, a TV program in the back room of the kitchen when you see the the chaos, the intensity and the capacity at which they're moving and 
the whole, as you say, the the amount of orders that are coming, it just does not stop. And it looks draining. It really, really does. Coupled with, of course, the heat and everything going on as well. One hell of a first job. Yeah, it, well, it was a hell of a first job. And, and also in those kind of environments when it's super tough, having a strong team around you and being able to kind of support each other in a very, you know, lots of banter, lots of just jokes you have to just keep the humor otherwise i think you would lose your mind and i think bringing that kind of attitude to other jobs that i subsequently went on to when times get tough and actually try and inject a bit of humor definitely helps yeah i agree with that i think humor is a a good principle to have in any workplace for for sure especially Mm. as you say when times are tough and hectic and i imagine being a chef communication was absolutely vital as well uh, lots of shouting. So yeah, communication. It's a it's a machine, basically. And if and if anybody, if there's one, yeah, if there's one cog in the machine that's that's not working, then the whole thing stops. So yeah, shouting, communicating, planning. You know, planning in the morning for the evenings. It's all it's all super valuable. Yeah, that's probably one of the most valuable jobs I did actually. <laughs> looking back. Yeah, it does sound like it gives you all of the principles for running a business. The communication thing when things get hectic you know, just stay on top of things, the mental resilience, all of those things intertwined would definitely uh, play a role in a business. So yeah, I, I completely mm. agree with you. All right. So walk me through your career path then uh, leading up to Obscuro after the the chef job. Yeah. So a quick whistle stop tour then. So uh, yeah, packed off to university where I did mechanical engineering, loved every minute of it. Um, and then I graduated in 2000. So I really hit the dot-com boom. And it was very easy for me to walk into a job um, related to anything to do with the internet. And actually, I walked into a job at a telecoms company. They were called Worldcom back at the time. And I was literally just driving IT equipment around London in a white van. But gradually working my way up, I became project manager and I subsequently ended up running a London server team for that company. And then I moved over to electronic broking. So having having understood the world of the of kind of corp, the corporate world and getting to make some contacts, I was uh, invited to take on a role at uh, yeah an electronic broker again, looking after their technology, running the the London team, the London technology team, and that was a super successful company. It's called EBS Electronic Broking Services, and um, they had a very niche product around netting FX trades. So they ended up being acquired by the interdealer broker that I mentioned earlier. And I stayed in that project management role and moved into ICAP as a project manager and subsequently became, I think I was there for, yeah, about seven years. And I, I eventually became a global program manager. And it was at Worldcom, sorry, it was at the Instiller broker called ICAP that I had the opportunity to be able to deliver an electronic broking platform. And it was quite unique at the time because it allowed voice traders in the broking business to actually start doing electronic trading of their voice business so it's, it really opened up new opportunities and it really opened up this complementary product where the markets that the brokers were working in would be aggregated onto a single screen and they would ha- then have a view of the markets that they wouldn't have necessarily had before all in one place and one thing that's really stood out about that program not only was it relatively expensive at the time at the five million dollar program but the the cto um, who i was working with insisted it had a very good user experience and a very good user interface which is something that always got neglected for internal applications particularly for brokers and it made a hell of a difference so we employed dedicated graphics designers and and since then you know i've really brought on board the importance of having 
really good user experience, really good user interfaces, really getting the detail like down to pixel by pixel detail on an application. And, and we definitely bring that mindset over to Obscuro as well. So really, really pleased to have been able to understand why that is so important. And then that platform called Fusion ended up winning some awards. It continues to win awards today. So really happy to have given birth to that platform. And it was whilst I was working on a regulatory program for that interstellar broker that I came across blockchain because blockchain looked like a really good opportunity to be able to make some significant cost savings and really bring forward some efficiencies in in the way the financial industry works. Going back to what I was saying earlier about it being a very intertwined web of dependencies and it is blockchain just kind of cuts through all of that, particularly from a regulatory reporting point of view, being able to have real-time reporting and, and saving costs on all that uh, regulatory reporting would, is, is, is a huge bonus for blockchain. And so that took me to a company called R3. And it's at R3 where I met the co-founders of Obscuro. So I met James Carlyle, Case Manai, and Tuda Malene. And we, we all held senior roles in R3. I actually joined R3 when it was still very small. I think I was employee number 15. We had four engineers at the time, and I was tasked with building the engineering capability there and actually bring R3's blockchain product called Corda to fruition. So yeah, again, building a platform from pretty much zero. We had, I think we had one screen of code up to a production enterprise grade blockchain platform within a couple of years. So having met the co-founders at R3, that's that's how we ended up giving birth to Obscura. Amazing. And this is, I think, my most enjoyable part of uh, the podcast, really understanding how you've, you know, I love to get a good visualization of that moment where you're like you know what i want to do something myself so take me mm. back to that moment where the other co-founders you know what's the situation because you, you you've had a great career at r3 just over six years at what moment did it come into your head thinking i can create something myself and tell me how that materialized was it you who came up with the idea was it one of the other founders that brought it to you talk to me about that moment yeah still sticks in my head very clearly jordan it was significant obviously setting up by yourself is going to have quite an impact on you. So yeah, we'd spent six years building Corda and we'd got to the point where, you know, it's being used by Italian banking system for, for settlement. Most CBDC projects are using Corda. Corda's won awards as the, as the best enterprise blockchain. So yeah, we really, we got to the point where it wasn't so much in maintenance mode, but I think we'd done so much of the heavy lifting. We were looking around and we had so James Carlyle, one of the co-founders, he's always had a soft spot for Ethereum. He was at the very first Ethereum meetup many years ago. Uh, a case has always been embedded in Bitcoin from a long time ago. And we took a look around the Web3 ecosystem and we saw that within that six-year period that we were building Corda, Ethereum had become an enormous hotbed of innovation, liquidity, and it looked very exciting. It had really become something way more than it was when we were last paying attention to Ethereum like five years ago. So we decided mm. what if we could bring the privacy awareness, the lessons that we learned building Corda, uh, the lessons that we learned using um, encryption technology and apply that to Ethereum because Ethereum being completely transparent, completely public by design, we realized if financial institutions, if genuine corporate customers are going to be attracted to web3 they are going to want a degree of encryption they are going to want a degree of control and the public element of ethereum is going to be off-putting for them 
So Tudor and James, they worked very hard on a solution which was going to be able to provide a very low friction experience for Ethereum smart contract developers. Again, learning from Corda that if you make it difficult for developers to actually build on the platform, it's kind of going to go nowhere. And we, well, actually, Tudor and James really spent a long time. They spent months putting together the white paper for Obscuro that describes how the Ethereum virtual machine in its entirety runs in an encrypted secure enclave. And by using the entire EVM, it makes it very easy for Solidity developers to bring their smart contracts over to Obscuro from Ethereum. So that was a really significant requirement from Obscuro. And then layer twos were becoming, that they were very embryonic when we were originally designing Obscuro. And it looked layer two, the, the concept of a layer two, being able to have scalable and fast transactions on top of Ethereum really piqued our interest again, because seeing how Ethereum could be the very robust, trusted, secure data layer by having a layer two and designing a Obscuro to be a layer two gives far more uh, flexibility about what you can do in terms of dedicated app chains, or you could have guaranteed TPS, or you could have guaranteed gas fees. Um, and that, again, was particularly tempting, having tried to and, and actually achieving the same for Corda. And so come January 22, we set up the company Obscura Limited, and then we spun out from R3 uh, in April 22 to form Obscuro in its own right. And that's, that's really when we got, we got cracking. Can you explain to me the emotions and feelings that you felt when you'd handed in your notice and then you realized I'm now stepping into the unknown, trying it myself? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was scary. If I wouldn't say it was scary, I, I think you'd have to have a screw loose um, or you'd have, to be, you'd have to be very secure, like financially anyway. I mean, just going back to what, to what I was saying, you know, you realize that life, life is what you make it. and this was a great opportunity. James, Tudor, and Case, I trust 100%. I knew their instincts was right. Other people that I trust had also read the white paper. They had awesome feedback. And it just seemed like, you know, this is a great opportunity here. It's either going to last six months or it's going to last six years. The scare factor kind of disappeared quite quickly. Once you get your head down and you really get started in, in starting a business, so Case has, has had a couple of startups, so he kind of knew the ropes. James has had a couple of startups. Startups, to me, has been a new experience, and, and I've learned an, an enormous amount along the way. But once you get started and once you get your head down and, and you just start ticking off the activities and you start ticking off progress, actually, it becomes you, you feel more empowered and you feel more freedom, really, being able to run your own company. And I heard it so many times when I, was, when I was much, much younger, people saying, oh, you should run your own company, you, you get to be your own boss. And I never really understood what that meant. Even now, even today, Jordan, I, I really do appreciate that actually whilst we all work incredibly hard and I never stopped thinking about Obscuro, actually that is offset quite significantly by the amount of freedom that you have to make decisions that you think are right. You get freedom to be able to build a company culture that is unique to your own company and, and a company culture that you feel is is the right way for people to work. Yes, yeah, very empowering, scary and empowering. 
And I think I'm going to struggle to go back, to be honest. <laughs> I resonate with everything you just said there. You know, I myself remember when I founded my own recruitment agency. And that's why I asked you the question, because I was curious to see the emotions that you felt. Like, I'd never felt so sick in all my life when I was mm -hmm. realizing, oh my God, I'm actually about to hand in my notice and take the biggest risk of my life and you don't know truly you can't 100% say that it's going to work even though you believe it will and so on mm. um but very quickly like you said like anything really you always fear the idea of it like that's what anxiety is right but then once you actually do it and get going and everything's starting to come together you relax more into the situation and you start to enjoy it. And that's exactly what I experienced as well. And I too agree with what you're saying that the freedom, whilst it's so taxing in terms of, you know, you've got to wear many hats at the beginning and it really is no easy route for sure. But it is, it is freedom because no matter how much work you have to do, at least, you know, it's your decisions and it's your business. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree with everything you said there. And you know, what a journey. You can always look back and think, I created this and it's been one hell of an adventure. And you say you, you, you can't go back after that. <laughs> I always say as a joke, I feel like I'm un unemployable now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but amazing. Okay, so tell me, I mean, of course, you've been in head positions already at R3 and ICAP as well. But talk to me about the unexpected aspects perhaps you didn't think of when building a business like Obscuro? It was probably fairly straightforward. I think complexity of HR law <laughs> in the UK, employment law. I, I think when you come from a corporate environment and you've taken for granted that there's an HR department, there's a legal department, a finance department, and you're having to do it all yourself, it, it, that was quite a steep learning curve. For, fortunately, being, being a UK limited company, you know, we're very well supported by the UK government, particularly the technology startup. And in actual fact, we're able to, to benefit from some R&D grants from the government as well. So being a startup in the UK is definitely beneficial. That kind of caught me out a little bit. I think, what else? Uh, I, I guess always, always being switched on, if you know what I mean, particularly if so when I'm at events and when I'm networking, I do find that difficult. I do find that hard work. I'm absolutely exhausted after a day of networking. So I was recently in Paris at ETC and um and actually the main event was was kind of okay, interesting. But the side there were over two hundred side events and it really that the side events for me are such, such a crucial component of any of these conferences. And whilst they're all geared up to be fun, you know, beers, food, you're not there to drink and you're not there to eat. You're there to, to chat and make connections. And for me, that has been hard work. I think I'm not particularly well wired for networking. So I do have to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. And as I say, by the time I get back to my hotel at half 11, I'm absolutely exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the feeling. Uh... Okay, so you're, how many people are you now? There's 11 of us now, Jordan. So 11 people right now. You've been going just almost a year and a half, and there were three of you at the beginning. Is that right? Yeah, so four, well, four of us at the beginning. So okay. yeah, myself, Case, Tudor, and, and James. So you know, there'll be lots of people here that perhaps have an idea and they want to start their own business or they just have. You know, What's the, the first few moves that you have to get right to go from 
being three or four founders to you know the size that you are now after a year and a half i mean no, no business is going to survive without a degree of funding so i think you would have to accept that funding is going to consume pretty much 95 to 100 percent of your time until you've got enough funding to be able to kind of get cracking with a good two three year runway uh we were quite lucky in that r3 provided us with pre-seed funding so we didn't have that much of a headache to begin with but assuming you've got your funding underway and you want to start growing and you want to start achieving i, I, I mean grow cautiously i think would be would be my takeaway we've been super cautious about our growth and uh, we're very lucky in that we've we have people on the team that are super smart actually i mean this is a bit this is a bit general i think you just have to be really careful about who you hire first and if you've got any kind of doubt any doubt then it's that's then it's a no but when you are so small if you hire a good you know, you make a good hire, and it, and you've been in recruitment by sounds of it, Jordan. So you kind of know how this all how this all plays out. But if you make a good hire, that person can so fundamentally shift your business in such a positive way that it's worth taking the time and being, and as I say, being cautious about who you take on board early on because they're just going to eat away at your funds. And if if they're not delivering exactly what you want in exactly the kind of way that you need, then you know you've got to question yourself whether they're the right person, and you just need to be comfortable with saying thanks but no thanks and if you're if you're as lucky as we are in obscuro and that we've got a super solid tech solution just stand by it and don't be tempted to pivot we've had a couple of opportunities where we could shift and pivot but we we stuck to our guns and i'm i'm now glad we've done that because it's all worked in our favor particularly around layer twos you know we see an arbitrum optimism they're all um super successful platforms and i think the way Vitalik's talking about layer twos uh, that is definitely the future so i'm glad we, we stuck to that and similarly with the encryption uh, encryption is becoming more and more important privacy on ethereum is becoming more important again it's something Vitalik's talking about so yeah really pleased that we stuck to our guns yeah, I, I agree with you. And Ando, going back to what you said about the importance of uh, getting the right hire, that is, uh, for me, that's the most essential one, especially when you're so small, because it's, mm. it's a really intimate workplace. It's significant, you know, being such a small size, everybody knows each other by name. And one bad hire can be like, uh, you know, like a rotting apple amongst the other fruit yeah. and it can quickly spread. So that is essential. And I, you know, I think back to what it's like building my business it's crucial that you bring people that are on board even if it's not their business but they believe in it just as much as you do and they feel that their value is wanted by the business just as much as the founders themselves and all of that intertwined should you know allow a seed to turn into a flower or the other way around if it's a bad hire so i have to agree with that 100 percent. okay so obscuro we're to the present day what's the plans for the future how far do you want to take it with obscuro um how far do you want to take it well we want obscuro to be the foundation for all web3 transactions <laughs> quite frankly because we know it's the right it's the right platform to do that it brings the degree of privacy encryption that's required to hit the mainstream for institutional use cases you know if you want real world assets on blockchain if you want say for example salaries to be paid on blockchain to, to really gain the efficiencies of, of blockchain and Web3, then you're going to have to have a degree of privacy about salary amounts and things like that. If we want Web3 to undo Web2, then encryption is absolutely essential because even something simple like 
I don't know, a game of poker, for example, that has mixed elements. It has public cards, it has private cards. And that current mix of private public is impossible to achieve on Ethereum at the moment. But bringing something like Obscuro to the table makes that far more realistic. So when you think about bringing games to Web3, where you want to be hiding player moves, where you want to be hiding assets, or you want to be hiding armies, then that can only be achieved if you've got, got a degree of privacy, a degree of encryption within that application on Web3. And you can extend that to gambling, iGaming. You know, if you want to have tamper-proof code, if you want to have absolute certainty that in this decentralized Web3 environment, that the code that should be running, the the code that the house is running is tamper-proof, then again, you need something like Obscuro that runs all the codes in an encrypted environment in a secure enclave where nobody can disrupt and nobody can tweak and nobody can manipulate the code to their advantage. If you want simple features that you find on centralized exchanges, on decentralized exchanges, something like order limits, again, you need a private or an encrypted solution to do that. So again, Obscuro delivers that capability. So for us, it's really, we're absolutely convinced that we can take a significant share of Ethereum's current traffic over to Obscuro simply because we offer something that is so fundamental and something we take for granted. I mean, there was a time when everything was public on the internet. You know, it was all HTTP traffic. And then HTTPS came along, that introduced encryption. And then that led to this explosion of e-commerce. Amazon could exist. We could share our credit card details on the internet without somebody taking them off us. And that whole shift towards an encrypted internet led to personalized experiences where we share photos with people that we want to share them and we don't have to share them with everybody. So for us, we think Obscuro is going to be that catalyst that is is, is that inflection point where Web3 can go way, way, way beyond what it's capable of now. To get to that size, to get to that kind of reach, I'm assuming that's going to require your next round of funding. At what funding round are you at the moment? Is it seed, pre-seed, or do you have series? Is it Series A? Uh, so we're, we're doing a strategic round at the moment, Jordan. So we did a pre-seed and a seed, and now, yes, yeah, a strategic round now, just to get us a little bit more runway, let us grow a little bit further, and then. Yeah, just just give us a bit of a treasury just so that we can weather any future storms. So, yeah, we're raising at the moment. And yeah, so far, so good. Uh, So when I talk with a lot of guests in the past, they talk about the difficulty for uh, getting funding, how hard it can be, the amount of the amount of conversations you need to have, putting yourselves out there. How have you found sourcing funding yourself? Uh, It's definitely got more challenging. I think... um, so we finished our seed rounds in November last year, and we just got a tail end of what was a what was a fairly positive funding environment. Then a strategic round around about now, yeah, it's pr- proving difficult. But actually, there are still, you know, there's still VCs out there that want to be able to see Web three grow and develop. There, there are specifically VCs out there that are looking for encrypted layer twos. So, and it also depends where in the world you're looking. So obviously, we have a completely global outlook. And some some regions are, are way more positive. Uh, they've got way more uh, liquidity available than other regions. So I think it's it is challenging, but it's not impossible. Yeah, and 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 everything that is worth having never comes easy, either. Right? Mm. Yeah. So besides Obscuro, let's just take it back to yourself personally. What are your what are your personal motivators for doing what you do? 
one of my motivations actually is doing right by the team. I think because we did so carefully build a build a top a top notch team, it's important that we. Um, well, I personally, I feel motivated to make sure they have they have a good outcome for them, so they have a good personal outcome. So not only do they actually feel like they're they're working towards something meaningful, they're all working incredibly hard, which means I have to be working as hard, if not harder, to make sure that there's no blockers for them, to make sure that the company can keep can keep existing, quite frankly, in a very in a very confident position so that they can continue to give it everything they want. The last thing I want is for members of the team to have in the back of their minds where's Obscura going. So that motivates me to keep those guys one hundred percent engaged and behind what we're doing. But also the broader picture, you know, I've seen blockchain since 2016. I've seen how technology can can get super exciting. I can see how there can can be a lot of hype. But actually the people that that make new technology and make um, innovative technology successful are the ones that keep going at it and keep working incredibly hard. And I, I consider myself to be one of those people. I love what blockchain represents. I really am so, so enthusiastic about what Ethereum represents and that Ethereum community. You know, you come away from somewhere like ETH and there are so many positive attitudes and so many positive uh, signals about the way Web3 can progress. You know, I want to be a part of that ecosystem as well i want to be able to contribute meaningfully to what the future of ethereum and web3 is going to become amazing last question gavin so throughout your entire career for everything that you have learned of course there will be many ingredients but if you could give just one single ingredient to be successful what would you say that is i'd say listen listen to people and i really listen you know find people that you respect listen to what they tell you and be open to criticism and be prepared to change by listening to what people you respect are going to tell you yeah that's a, a powerful answer i didn't expect you to say that you know you naturally have anticipating in your head what you might say but i think i i really agree with that like if you want to be successful especially as a business owner if you can't listen to your to your other co-founders or your team, nobody's going to want to work for you. Mm. You ain't going to be able to build a business and nobody gets there on their own, quite frankly. So powerful. Listen. All right. Gavin, thank you so much for joining me on the Startup Stories podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really excited to follow Obscuro's journey now that I know all about it and where your mission lies with the business. And, uh, yeah, I really hope it all goes great for you. Well, thanks, Jordan. Thanks for your very inquisitive questions. Uh, some of them definitely caught me by surprise, but really enjoyed talking to you, really enjoyed sharing my story there. So thanks again, Jordan. My pleasure, Gavin. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.